Ladies and gentlemen, if you like the Smug Film Podcast, do yourself a favor and head over to patreon.com slash smugfilm, where we've got a bunch of great rewards if you donate to the show. For just $1 a month, you'll get a bonus mini episode of the show every Monday in your inbox, as well as access to all the past mini episodes. These episodes will never be available on iTunes or smugfilm.com or anywhere else. The only way to hear them is by donating $1 a month through patreon.com slash smugfilm. For $5 a month, you'll get the bonus episodes. Plus, we will do a 30-second plug of whatever you want on one episode a month. Your movie, your small business, how cool you are, your Twitter handle, whatever it is, we'll plug it. For $10 a month, you'll get the bonus episodes. Plus, we'll do a 30-second plug of whatever you want on every single episode of the show. That's four episodes a month. That's an incredible deal. So once again, the URL is patreon.com slash smugfilm. Head on over there today, and we look forward to your kind donation. And now, on to the show. Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is Jenna Ipcar. Hello. On Skype, we got John D'Amico. Hey. And the Eagle has landed. We got Kyle Eagle. Thank you very much. How you doing? Welcome, Kyle. Good to be here. Jenna, tell us, tell the folks at home a little bit about uh, Kyle. I feel like this price is right right now. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell, tell the folks at home about uh, Kyle Eagle. Well, for only $50. <laughs> No, uh, so Kyle, I'm bringing Kyle onto the show essentially, um, in part because uh, Kyle is. If you want to know something about jazz, this is your guy. That's right. This is a jazz-centered uh, episode, not Finally. to be confused with jizz, which we have covered at great <laughs> length on this podcast. Uh, the Star Wars, of course, the Star Wars uh, music. Of, of course. Jizz. What else would you be talking yes. about? Only the Star Wars music. But yes, we're living up to the our theme song. Finally, yeah, a final, jazz episode. Finally, our theme song is apropos. <laughs> finally, it, it you know it makes sense uh, perfectly. Yeah. You know. So Kyle and I have done some uh, jazz stuff for uh, WBGO in Newark, New Jersey. If you guys know about it, we've the stuff we've done some things for the checkout. Shout out to Newark. Yeah. Yeah. Great place. Newark City. <laughs> And uh, from there, you know, so Kyle, then he asked me at some point, he's like, hey, this DVD is coming out that I produced. And can you help me edit the liner notes? And I was like, yeah. And then uh, in reading these liner notes and then seeing the movie, of course, uh, as well, uh, it's actually incredibly interesting. So this is a documentary. It's called This is Gary McFarland. Uh, Gary McFarland being a a jazz musician um, who kind of is an interesting story. But I, yeah, I think also what is also really interesting here is the story of how this sort of got made and how Kyle got involved in it. So you know, let, let let's uh, let's tell the folks at home, Kyle. Well, it's a uh, uh, Gary's an interesting guy in a lot of jazz. I, in, the, in the liner notes, and I use a lot in the line. I mentioned that jazz artists, by and large, live extraordinary lives, and they often meet dramatic ends. And the jazz musician kind of takes the cake on it. And uh, Gary was this interesting guy. He looked interesting, which is how I started buying his records. He dressed really suave. He had a cool style. And his music sounded like the way he looked. And it was... Which uh, is really satisfying. I feel like that's like, <clears throat> it's hard to find someone who can live up to how well they dress sometimes. Well, that's one of the reasons why I like jazz. I think you find a lot of jazz 
fans are like that because the covers look like the, like Miles Davis's paraphernalia. You open the album cover up, the photograph of him looks like yeah, that's the guy that made a song called Paraphernalia. The cover goes with it. Or uh, The Blues and the Abstract Truth by Oliver Nelson. Great title. And the open the rec- music within is, wow. And Oliver Nelson, he looked cool. Monk looked cool. Mingus looked cool. You know, that's the difference between the like, smooth jazz stuff. Like, Kenny G doesn't look cool. He doesn't even have a cool name. I beg to differ. But. <laughs> you know, uh, was it uh, Dave Koz with that, like, thinning hair that's permed with that bad mustache and oversized button shirts with the bad horn salt. Like, they don't, there's a night and day difference. But Gary, I started getting his music and Gary died mysteriously. And it's an unsolved murder mystery, basically. Mm. And there's a lot of, there's a, you could make a series of shows called the Jazz Mysteries. And uh, the more I got into his music, there was stuff that was like really kind of, Hard to categorize. He was on Impulse and he was on Verve, two big jazz labels in the 60s. And the stuff ranged from like really just kind of abstract, hard bop tunes to really heavily samba influenced stuff. Beautiful, lyrical, uh, very, very uh, ethereal. And then other stuff was like these large suites that he would do. Very, very uh, ambitious. So he ranged in style a lot. And I liked that. And then uh, there wasn't a lot about him. His records were out of print or, or you could find him for dirt cheap. And then uh, there was a Gary McFarlane page. And I read it and I found this guy, Christian St. Clair, was making a film about it. And my, I called him. His number was on it. And he talked to me about it. And he sent me a, a rough cut copy of it. And then years later, he wanted to make a film about a jazz musician that I was managing at the time, Gratian Moncour III. I was like, oh, wow. You know, I know you from the Gary film. And then we met up in New York to work on this Gratian film and, and also at the same time a film about Jack Nietzsche, which we're just about finished with. I like to plug that in. Uh, string man. Anyway, so we met each other and we hit it off like a house on fire. Same sense of humor, same drinking habits. Uh, just both had this uh, really, I wouldn't, say we're, I wouldn't say we're nerds for jazz, but we, it's an art form. And it is a, a high art form, and there's a lot of details to it, a lot of movement. He gets, and he's not like a lot of jazz fans where you meet guys who like, just like straight ahead, or they just like free jazz, or they just like big band stuff. He likes all of it. Like me, I like all of it. I think it's all great. And he's six foot seven. I six, just want to plug the fact he's that six, he's incredibly tall. Yeah, he's six foot seven. God damn. <laughs> yeah, six foot seven. Side note, but worth worth mentioning. Yeah, but we uh, hit it off well, man. We have a you know, and then. I helped him just because from working in jazz and booking concerts, I got to meet a lot of people and it helped fill in the blanks when it came to getting interviews. But with the Gary McFarlane film, Christian did an amazing job of nailing all the principal characters in Gary's life before they died. Most of most of them, most of them died within a few years of the interview. Yeah. That's what I find really interesting about this movie uh, is that, you know, now Christian, I mean, he made it over several years, right? And with like yeah. basically no money. <laughs> His own money. Yeah. You know? So it's sort of this self-funded, like small, small project that he had just been working on because he was interested in the guy. The fact that he managed to track down all of these people who, you know, are now dead, right? I, I think, you know, because uh, we just saw a screening of it uh, like a year ago. And afterward, he was mentioning that I think like, what, like 80% of the people were, were dead. dead. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. yeah Gary's yeah. Gary's widow. But again, the Gary story, the, the, the film, like you said, made with no money, you know, like the fact that he did stuff like 
would hire someone from a local college nearby some, where someone lived and have them film it and pay them, and then they'd send them the footage back. It often varies in quality, but I've always, Christian and I have a very, I'd say, we have a b- big belief in like, let's just get it done. If you're going to wait to get the money, to get the film crew, to get this, that guy's going to die in that time. Yeah. And documentary making is like a not it's probably as complicated and time consuming as writing a novel they take a long time to make but they're very satisfying especially when you get little secrets out or like you know the un, you peel back the onion layers on something you know I, I think in the gary film the best thing we got was gene lee's and chet amsterdam who chet amsterdam was there when gary died when he was poisoned and gene lee's was this guy who was a writer who coined the term gary is an adult prodigy and it's true. The guy was in his late thirty, late twenties, early thirties when he started playing music. Wow! And that commentary that Gene Lee's wrote about him forty years previous and having revisited, just I think makes sets the critical tone of the film. And that can he died shortly after. Yeah, and Gary, I guess I mean he has this music that. All right, now you can you know correct me because I'm I <laughs> I think his music kind of sounds a bit like the Austin Powers theme song. That's sort of like da 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 da. Well, isn't it's that a, isn't that Quincy Jones, the Austin Powers theme, or but it just Soul has, Bossa Nova? Yeah, it has home. that like very like light. It's almost elevator music, except it's not like it's not bad music or something. But yeah, if you were in an like, elevator, you'd be like, I'm not leaving this elevator. I don't want. I don't want <laughs> yeah. to go to my floor. I'm going to exactly, hang out here. That's exactly right. I'm going to well, press buttons for people. That's one of the things about Gary. Like I said, like he had Gary. You know, it's funny, Brian Eno made this thing up and he did if you notice a lot of his people he produces you make a record that's uncompromisingly artistic and you make one that sells so you can keep going peter gabriel that did that Eno was heavily involved in, in peter gabriel's career and i don't know if he produced stuff but if you look at gabriel's records he has the sledgehammer album then he has the last temptation of christ soundtrack you see that with film a lot too you see yeah. that with filmmakers like steven soderbergh I mean, you can tell the ones that he did that are just like from him, like Schizopolis or Bubble, oh, well, I mean, as compared to like a, Love Schizopolis. Yeah, that's a, that's a phenomenal film. If you're listening at home and you want to see something weird that's like good weird, because there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that's just weird, you know, in life. But this is this is good weird. Schizopolis I, is great. <laughs> I think Soderbergh's one of the best filmmakers out. I think his whole crew. I think once he met up with George Clooney, it's like. Lennon meeting McCartney. They just make magic together. In the Ocean's Eleven films, they're not great. Yeah, they're they're very clearly, for the masses, they're very clearly commercial. And they drive the train of Syriana. They drive the train of uh, Good Night and Good Luck. Yeah, exactly. That opened the doors for him to do a lot of interesting yeah. stuff. And I respect him immensely for that. It shows that George Clooney is not just a heartthrob. He's also got a lot of depth. Yeah. You know, but the, you know, the Ocean's Eleven films are pretty... They're pretty fun. I love the sound. The soundtracks are are, are jazzy. Uh, David David Holmes did the scores for those. And a great electronic uh, artist. But going back to Gary, Gary's stuff, yeah, he did, which is what critics hated about him. They hated the fact that this guy made a, a record called Point of Departure, and then which is artistically lauded, critically lauded. And then he has the soft samba, which is samba versions like Beatles songs, Rolling Stone songs, but it it made him bankable. Yeah, John, you you like Gary McFarlane, right? You knew about him. Yeah, uh, not super well, but um, I know America the Beautiful and um, Reflections in the Park and a few other things, and I always really liked it. I love America the Beautiful. I think that's a, just a fantastic album. Me too. That record is so ahead of its time. 
That's funny you mentioned Reflections of the Park, and that was kind of a, that's a really obscure reference for Gary. How'd you come upon that one? I don't know. Might have been piracy, if I'm being honest. It's just, that's the one that sort of drifted to me and, and stuck with me, those it's, two. Because part of it shows up on the Bill Evans record. Yes, yeah, I have the Bill Evans record. That must be how I know it, because it's like the first to second track on that part of it, right? Yeah. Like a little excerpt. Yeah. So, you know, I think what's also so cool, I mean, you know, number one, I, I personally, not granted again, I, I'm not a, a huge jazz person, despite having worked with you on, on this WBGO stuff. But um, I mean, uh, some of it I'm, I'm really into, but I'm, I wouldn't, you know, I'd never heard of Gary. I guess most people, though, if, from what you've sort of said, you know, people in the know, people into jazz have heard of Gary. But otherwise, it's like, you know, most people, I think, have heard of like Mingus, you know, just in life. You can't like live and not hear about Thelonious Monk or, you know, Miles Davis or something. Those are like names that come up. Whereas Gary McFarlane, like I had no idea. Well, that's the thing about Gary is that it's uh, in the liner notes, I re- reference Renee Ricard's quote, the Van Gogh boat. Whereas some people are famous in death and they're obscure in their lifetime, where Gary was well known in his lifetime. He was on The Tonight Show several times. Um, he was, uh, he had top selling records. He, he did a, a, a Fresca commercial. With, Which is amazing, yeah. actually. Mm-hmm. But that's probably the my favorite part of the documentary is just that Fresca commercial because yeah. it's it's so six it's like swinging sixties. It has this cheesiness, but it's like fun. Uh, you know, it, yeah, exactly. He's you, like in a in a recording studio and it starts snowing like that, and then they're just nice. like like this sort of I don't know I don't even what was the song you know flea the song. market there you go that's yeah. a good song actually great song there's several versions of it too and that one's. Well, you know, like you'd said before, Jenna, like he seemed like the ultimate 60s guy. And it, oh, yeah. This guy, he's the ultimate 60s like, guy. <laughs> Gary really could have made a walk on the Dick Van Dyke show or been a character based on I mean, Mad Men. He, mm. And he wrote jingles. Yeah. He wrote a lot of commercial jingles. Lots of them. Uh, he got that from a, a, one of his uh, mentors in the music business was Chico Hamilton, who made his whole fortune on making jingles. His records as well, but his big money-making career were, were jingles. And Gary followed suit with that. Well, I think even even his um, more sort of uh, out there stuff has that feel. Like in America, the beautiful uh, 80 miles an hour through beer can country. Yeah, great song. It's a great song. But in the middle, like you almost hear like peanuts in it. Mm. You know, like it starts to sound like the, the jazz music in peanuts. Vince Guaraldi. Yeah. Sound, yeah. I would say definitely that Gary fits in with Vince Guaraldi. He fits in with uh, uh, Cal Jader. He fits in then like his art abstract side. You see, he never he he never quite he's avant garde, but he's also pop. But his avant garde is not like Coltrane and Pharaoh Saunders or Albert Allier. He's more Gabor Zabo. He's more Chico Hamilton. Heavy Latin bass in it in his music uh, with uh, that kind of charming, melodic, and accessible sound like Vince Guaraldi. You know, like you're right, Peanuts. It's like a more challenging peanut. Like, yeah, Vince Guaraldi had had beefier records, you know, which nothing against Vince Guaraldi. I think he's a, a wonderful or was a wonderful pianist and composer. But so you were saying, too, that he was he was so well known in his time. He had this career that was going up, up, up. And then he dies mysteriously and suddenly in, in a bar in New York City that's still around. 55 bar. In West Village. It's right next to the, the Stonewall Inn, actually. Yeah. But you never I never noticed it until I mm. saw the movie. And I was like. Really? There's a bar there and you still walk past? Still owned by the same family. Yeah. Bradley's. Still still a jazz thing, right? Yeah. Said it's a mob front, but hey, I'm not saying <laughs> that. Anyway, 
Yeah, well, Gary, you know, Gary worked with, if you look at people he worked with, like Stan Getz, he worked with uh, 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 Anita O'Day, uh, Jerry Mulligan, all these heavy hitters that knew his, knew his, his compositions. And, uh, and then uh, he dies and then it's just gone. Yeah, it's just, it just yeah, he's poisoned in a bar. He, he started transition, transitioning towards doing soundtracks, Broadway scores, and then he gets poisoned by, by methadone in a bar. And it's, I, I'm pretty much convinced that it was from uh, Mason. Uh, oh, man, I just cleared out. James Gary, Mason. Yeah, James Mason. Yeah, yeah. Because Mason was such an out-of-control methadone addict. Hoffenberg. <laughs> Hoffenberg, yeah. Mason Hoffenberg, uh, Terry, Terry uh, Southern's writing partner for Candy. He, there's a Playboy interview from 1974 where he mentions that he goes to New York City to get his method. He lived in Woodstock. And uh, they're like, doesn't that kind of a, you know, out of the way thing? No, no, it's cool. I like the drive. But, you know, one time I left, I, I, I actually, I, I went there to get it and I left it in a bar. And some poor fool died over it, some jazz musician. And it's like, well, oh, it's 74, 71, you know, the time all worked out, you know, that he mentioned. And then... Looking back on it, Mason Hoffenberg frequented the 55 bar mm. a lot. And the bartender found the methadone and spiked everyone's drinks. And it didn't just kill Gary. It killed a few other people and sent a few people to the hospital in a coma or cardiac arrest. Very, very, uh, you know, Chad, like I said, Chad Amsterdam's in the film. He was there. And I just, the visual impact of trying to see you're in a bar and all of a sudden, people just start falling over. Yeah. You know, like, so dramatic. And, and again, it seems only jazz musicians die that way. Or in dramatic, you know, like Lee Morgan. His girlfriend walked up to the stage, and he's playing and shot him right in front of everybody. Shot him. And he would have lived if there wasn't a blizzard outside. Ambulance couldn't get to him in time. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, like, uh, Dimebag Daryl's death. Of Pantera, where you know, fan just in the crowd walks right up to the stage, just shoots him. You know, it's it's horrible. You see these horrible deaths in jazz and rock, etc. These very weird, just uh, very cinematic uh, in a way. Oh yeah, horrible deaths. They make you can almost see the film, yeah, footage in your head, like uh, Eddie Jefferson, the jazz singer, uh, nineteen seventy nine. He uh, looks at the tour itinerary and like. Uh, do we have to play Detroit? I really don't like playing Detroit. And the manager's like, well, we've already booked it. We can't cancel it. All right, I'll play it. But I'm, and I'm kind of shortening this bit up. But, you know, like, after this, I never play Detroit again. And sure as right as rain. Uh, I believe it was after the show. We were outside the venue, and a car drove by and shot him. Mm. Drive-by. Uh, Wardell Gray. Uh, basically, your prototype beatnik existentialist reading horn player long time collaborator with Dexter Gordon somewhere somehow he ends up on a highway between Las Vegas and Los Angeles with his neck broken no one really knows why he got killed he dabbled in drugs late in his life more so than early but uh, there's that mystery how did he end up dying and no one talks about it yeah I mean, the players you can ask them oh no man no uh, uh, no that's cool like wow but a lot of those jazz guys too like you know like, Sir Shaloff got most of his gigs seemingly because he dealt dope. He's a heroin dealer. And people would want to hire, you know, hey, man, hire Serge. He's great. He's a great baritone. Barit- I think he played baritone sax. And they'd hire him. Next thing, your whole band's hooked on dope because he's dealing it. You know, uh, Miles Davis pimped out women when he was well-known. Yeah. Making records, making appearances and concerts. And he also sidelined pimping. Like, what the world? You know, 
you don't hear that in acting or like, you know, Marlon Brando, you know, got an Oscar for this film and he pimps on the side, you know, or like uh, Paul McCartney, in addition to writing songs, also, you know, deals arms, you know, or bootleg organs. Well, I will say the, the happy ending to your film, even though Gary doesn't have a happy ending. Uh, and what I think is actually really interesting and, and uh, you know, inspirational, I'll turn it into a spin it into an inspirational tale is the fact that, you know, Christian went out and he made this film over several years. He happened to, you know, meet up with you just because you were interested. You, you know, both of you and, and, and other people too, right? Collaborated, collaborated to get this film just made and done. And then it got out there and it's gotten distribution from uh, Light in the Attic. Yeah. Like, it's out on a wonderful, a really beautifully done uh, DVD and not just because I edited one of the liner notes, but uh, it comes with a CD. Right of of a live concert. Yeah, never uh, never before heard concert. It's from the soft samba era. Uh, and then you guys got screened at the the Maisel Center. Yeah, that was cool. That's amazing. Yeah, that was really cool. Um, got some good write ups. Wall Street Journal gave us a great write up, and it uh, really needed that kind of stuff too. That was, you know, not that we're getting rich off this, but you know, <laughs> it's it's a good compelling story but yeah the uh, the cd the pack light in the attic one is a great company period i don't know if you know them about their stores what they do but they also did sugar man that documentary yeah searching work. for sugar man yeah great film uh that guy lewis that kind of yacht rock guy you know they found this record they put it out they couldn't find the guy they found the guy they, hey look we got an escrow account with royalties for you not interested the guy says okay i'll tell you what if you change your mind here's my card give us a call we're going to keep this escrow account for you that's just a, such a great business model. Like they're not, they actually kept this guy's royalties. Yeah. Unheard of. <laughs> yeah. You know, but so they put the film out and they put this concert out, which that's a story in itself because there's a Seattle DJ that recorded hundreds of these jazz concerts that we're actually looking to put out. One being by Jack Wilson, a great, great composer and pianist, but Christian's based in Seattle and so is Light in the Attic. And so it kind of came around through, I think a network of friends and people he knew but it was, as soon as he told me he was coming out on that, I'm like, oh, man, this is the right avenue for it. And the packaging is, is, it is beautiful, I think, the way they did it. Uh, the liner notes are great because Al Cooper, uh, the great producer, session player, Bob Dylan, collaborator, uh, Blues Project, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, he wrote the first set of liner notes, which is a, a real honor to have him write the liner notes. Yeah. You know, and Christian and I both have, I have a lot of respect for Al. He's a wonderful Great guy, real minch, I think is the word I'm looking for, real minch. Yeah, that's one, you know, it's it's great. I think it just goes to show, it's like, you know, here's, he found out about this jazz musician that was sort of unfairly, was was dying over time, you know, that, that the memory wasn't being upheld, that there really was nothing, it was, I think it was, you know, he mentioned it was very hard to even find anything. And I think the fact that he had all these interviews was really, I mean, that's really the, and granted, I will say, I'm sorry, Christian, it's a rough, it's rough looking at some parts, but it is uh, full of great content and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's worth the watch. It's an interesting story. He's an interesting guy and, and the music is, is so of its time, it, but in a, in a way that's relatable now, but it's just, it has this great, like it puts you right back into the sixties. Yes. Yeah, my mom watched it. She said the same thing. The one that seems to always stir that is the wedding footage which I thought was oh, yeah. There's a scene where there's not a lot of footage of Gary and what it has been has been destroyed, the Tonight Show stuff especially, but <clears throat> he got his wedding film uh, and it has, it's a wedding with like Lalo Schifrin's there, 
Al Conan Zoot Sims are there. Uh, uh, Clark Terry's there. It was like this jazz lover's dream of a wedding going in the guests were like, the, you know, your A-list jazz and session player guys. You made an interesting point about Gary and, um, oh man. We edit, don't worry. Well, the thing, you know, <laughs> what's interesting is like, like he was well on his time. I wanted to go back to that. He's well on his time. But oddly enough, when he died, he quickly fell into obscurity. Mm. And that's just such a strange thing to me. Uh, I do think by the time the 70s rolled around, I think the music was considered a bit old hat. But then you look at stuff like Return to Forever, uh, Floor Purim stuff, a lot of jazz fusion stuff. And Gary was making that kind of music. Certainly on the same level that I would say David Axelrod was going in, Cannonball Adderley was going in, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Certainly. Uh, you could even say I, you know, uh, that they were uh, in that same vein. And I don't know, I guess just with Gary, yeah, he gets the opposite of the Van Gogh boat. Famous in his life, obscure in his death. I think that's um, extremely common. And I think it's the type of thing that by its very nature, it's, it's hard to chart. But I get the sense that that's way more common than the other way around. Because even if you look at some things like some of these boutique like DVD or uh, book publishing houses like a lot of all they have to do for example uh, new york review of books all they have to do really to blow people away is just find some stuff from the 40s or the 50s that uh was popular in its time but people forgot about something like glenway westcott or um john williams's novels i think it's in all the arts it's uh frustratingly common yeah i think you're gonna see a lot more of that now too i think with the digital age and like, you know, what are the charts? What is really selling? You know, you can completely disavow certain music criteria or marketing to find your other audience. And, but then again, I think we're also going to see a people in the, the digital age. I think we're going to see people who were great. I've known a few of them that make three or four astounding records that go nowhere. And you know, I guarantee Joseph Davison's is one. He's made these beautiful, rich, very neo Brian Wilson, uh, sunflower esque psychedelic records. And they don't go anywhere. They don't even get picked up even in the press. And I bet you 50 years from now, someone's going to pick one of them up and they're going, oh, wow, this was great. Where did this guy go? Uh, Mia Doi Taz, an artist. That's, I think, like that. She basically is a Southeast, I mean, Southwest regional uh, songwriter, incredibly original. And I think in, Time where we're old and gray, the people look back at her and be like, "Wow, how did we how did we miss out on this one?" And it's that's part of it. That's a, kind of the thing Christian are into. We really like doing the obscure and the underrated. Uh, and the next movie you guys are doing is about Jack Nietzsche, right? Jack Nietzsche, the the arranger, the producer, big guy behind the Stones, big guy behind Neil Young, a lot of soundtracks, one for the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, a lot of Robert Downey Senior films, Officer and a Gentleman. Basically, was the guy of the wall of sound, Phil Spector's wall of sound. In fact, in the movie, it's great because several people willingly and gladly debunk Phil Spector made that up. It's mm. Jack Nietzsche. Going back to what you're saying about, about the people in his life making documents, getting these people. You know, it's one, one thing I learned about Christian, I've learned about making films is when you bring up a subject to somebody, and like, uh, I guess who would be the biggest guy we interviewed for? Gary, or that Christian got for Gary would be um, Clark Terry. He got Clark Terry. Very well-known, major 
musician in jazz. In the Gary in the Jack Nietzsche film, we've got guys like Keith Richards, Milos Forman, big titans in their industry. And it's amazing when you pr- approach somebody with something that they, they they care about. Like a lot of these jazz guys love Gary, and they're all kind of sort of like, well, I don't know ever plays his music anymore, man. His music was great, you know. Or even if you play it live, no one. It doesn't get any reaction if compared to playing a, a well-known standard compared to a song by Gary that's not becoming a standard that should be. Uh, a lot of times, artists will come out of the woodworks surprisingly. But I'd love to talk about this guy. I've been I I thought this has been long overdue. Yeah, you're seeing that with the uh, you know rock and heavy metal too, where like uh, that movie Anvil that did so well a couple of years back. You see, you know, people from Metallica and Anthrax, etc. They're all like, "Yeah, Anvil was like just as good as we were," you know, when we were touring with them, etc. And uh, yeah, I guess it, there's like a push now. I think people, you know, when you're given when you're given so much option in the world, like on the internet, and you can listen to anything you'd ever want, you get kind of bored by the stuff that you really know. And you, I feel like there's a natural inclination towards like, all right, well, what am I missing out on now that everything's available to me? You know, what's what's falling through the cracks? And I, I've just been seeing so many documentaries like that over the years, like a. Uh, there's there's a great one called Tis Autumn. I don't know if you ever saw the Jackie Paris documentary. Oh, Jack, good singer. That's that's a fascinating documentary um, about a guy who basically like picked up a Jackie Paris record and was like, "This is amazing. What's this guy's story?" Couldn't find anything. Ended up uh, you know doing the documentary with tons of interviews with him, just him sitting talking to him, and basically discovered this guy with a beautiful voice, this incredible jazz singer gorgeous voice uh you know in in his 80s and and captured him like towards the end of his life you know really was able to uh give this guy an opportunity to talk about uh you know his history before he passed uh, it's an incredible documentary I, I, if you're listening at home and you know you're you're getting bitten by the bug from listening to all this talk that's that's definitely one to check out tis autumn well yeah it's funny you mentioned that. I, I do think this the fact now that documentaries technically are cheaper to produce now. Yeah. And it, uh, there are a lot of people out there where you can kind of, be, you can follow your journalistic ambitions. I would say certainly that's what Christian and I do or my, anyone I work with, uh, is digging up these stories. I've been working on a film with, a, a another writing partner of mine, uh, uh Nick Bardwash on Chuck Stewart, the photographer, you know, and you, it is, it, you see these great stories of the one on, uh, on uh, the wrecking crew right yeah tommy tedesco did absolutely great guy he nailed he got it he got glenn campbell in it and it's got this great story about how you know this wrecking crew would do anything from opera to surf rock in an eight-hour workday. yeah and these were you know or uh the one on uh clark terry that just came out that kid that he i guess mentored that blind musician the jackie paris one you're mentioning uh there's another one i've been trying to pick up what i can't remember the top of my head but there's you're right. There, well, a band called Death, uh, you know, that could definitely fall into that category too. Or our good friend Mark Covino, who's been on the show a couple times, his film. I mean, that band Death. I mean that that was like this really that, that really came from just a, a, a article, you know, in the New York Times. That that all came from that. Uh, you know, that grew into then the film, and then grew into this huge resurgence for this band that was just totally forgotten. Weren't there there were, there were Black punk rock group, right? Yeah, yeah. I re- I did read about this. Exactly. It sounds in the fascinating story. The music 
holds up too. Absolutely. And it, it just felt so like when I first heard their their music, I was like, all right, this is good. But I hate this kind of like trying to sound like old music thing because I just assumed they were some new band because like, why would they fall under the radar? Like, it, it, I, I feel like there's such a ingrained they overstated a little bit in that, though. I mean, they talk about them like they invented punk, but they're coming after MC5 and the Stooges. For sure. Yeah. But it, the, the, the sound like sonically. Like I like there's this weird like meritocracy thing that gets like stuck and ingrained in like I think everybody's guilty of this where they assume that like if something's really good, I must have heard of it. Um, and time and time again throughout your life, you realize, oh, that's not true at all. You yeah, know? there's there's so much stuff that's great that just falls by the wayside. And those death records, I mean, that, that's a prime example of that. Yeah. What's her face? A uh, uh, lady was married to uh, Andre Previn, Dora Previn. She made several great albums in the 70s that were brilliant, and they don't get any play. And then you see, I guess what it's cool about this kind of stuff is that it, it, to me, it's responsible to the artist. If you're curious, you should go out and find it. If you believe in it, it's 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 kind of a duty to make this person's work praised. Yeah, you know, uh, like Charles Ives, the composer, has gotten much more acclaim now. He's been dead for years. Bella Bartok, who died in relative poverty and obscurity. It was guys like Herbie Hancock and Miles Davis and, and a lot of jazz composers that reference his influence. And then now Bartok is solid gold in the classical world, whereas years before it was, oh, that's kind of weird. No, it's just, you don't get it, you know. Um, but some of these documentary makers, they, I think they do such a great job on it. And again, I do think it's if you the Meyer Breckenridge, the photography one. I mean, here's a kid who is born into a family that, that do storage unit auctions. And he has enough inclination and enough smart. Like, these photographs aren't just photographs. These are beautiful. And then as the story builds, you find out she's got this whole backstory. That's amazing. And I think with a lot of these documentaries now, that before people... Be, oh, I just want to say it's uh, Vivian Meyer. Vivian Meyer. 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 Yeah, what, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, my, yeah <laughs> sorry. Yeah, that was terrible. Uh, also great, though. Yeah. But I think sometimes now I'd be like, oh, it's such a shame about Vivian Meyer. You know, she went crazy and never really did anything with herself. It's not true anymore. If you do the work, good work will always find its audience. Yeah. Like Henry Darger. Was he a poor, sad soul as a janitor? No, he wasn't. He had to pick his time. He had a living to make, and then he also had to do all these obsessive paintings. I think a life well worth, uh, well spent. And it was lucky enough. It was, it was a good fortune that it was a film made about it. And really... Like with Vivian Meyer and Henry Darger, it's kind of like questions what is art? You know, it questions the academics, which the academics are always, in my opinion, should be question are questionable. Well, it seems that the academics can be just as susceptible to like flavor of the month as anything else. I think academics are at the profession of planning obsolescence. Don't you think it's possible also? In uh, retrospect, for it to happen, I mean the rediscovery. To I mean for every. Vivian Meyer, there's probably a hundred who never made it. And with film, you know, like I, I spent a lot of time sort of searching for what's rising to the surface. And for every one of these ones that makes it even after the fact, there's another probably hundred just as good that even in the fullness of time don't really get their due. You know, a movie like Tiburoneros will never, never be what it should be because it had its chance also for a rediscovery that just didn't happen. Well, John, talk uh, talk about uh, your discovery with Agnes Varda recently. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a little different because Agnes Varda is taken care of. I mean, Agnes Varda is, you know, she's nobody's questioning that. But, but such a um, such an important contribution of hers was, you know, the lead was buried. Yeah, I mean, she basically invented the French New Wave, but uh, the movie that she did it for is now considered a minor work and nobody watches it. And uh, the credit is all given to um, Truffaut and Renee's and all them. But uh, even sort of on a on a lower level, the, the, the people who they don't have their Clio from five to seven, if we're using Var- uh, Varda as an example. I, I do still think there's a ton that documentaries aren't going to rehabilitate. Well, I think it's also, it's also think the the like the way you're just saying like it sounds like you're perfect fit for being the Agnes Varda uh, crusader. I I consider myself a crusader for jazz in in me, obscure music. Christian's the same way. Tommy Tedesco. The reason I'm here now is talk about Gary. Uh, you know Christian as well and what we're doing. But I think Gary should be played on Lincoln Center. He has a record from Lincoln. In fact, his he was the first jazz guy to record at Lincoln, have a, a concert at Lincoln Center. Wow. He has recorded. Now Lincoln Center is almost synonymous with jazz. Yeah. And I always think like, hey, Winton, don't you think it'd be kind of fitting if we did like an anniversary of the first jazz concert at, at Lincoln Center? And it's Gary McFarland. Hey, that's a good idea. We should do that. I agree. But I definitely like, definitely think that, uh, that's why, I guess that's what, what you were saying sparked that, John that some of these doc makers are like crusaders. And you're right. For everyone that does make it to the cracks, there are those, that, which I think it's great because it spurns curiosity, you know, which yeah. it, it does. Like, look at when you go to that record store and you find that record that has Jake Holmes and it says Days Confused. You mean the Led Zeppelin song? No, it's by a guy named Jake Holmes. He wrote commercial jingles. But if you pick it up for a dollar, you're like, oh, wow, a whole new world discovers, you know, like, wow, I didn't know this guy wrote these songs and this and that. That's just one example of, like, where this stuff can take you. It, I, I got a job out of Gary uh, being curious. It got me sitting right here. Yeah. Following that curiosity. I think actually, you know, talking about the digital age, you know, like what you're saying, John, and I, and I think that's very true, obviously. You know, for everyone who makes it, there's 20, there's a million people who are just as good but didn't know how to get there or didn't have someone to promote them, which I think is actually the truth for Anyone who makes it, you know, like uh, like Van Gogh, it's like, you know, yeah, his brother made the effort and that's how it happened. Uh, obviously, some talent was there anyhow. But with the digital age, it feels like you actually can put these things out there. And I feel like now it's funny to to sort of see even like in the most, uh, you know, everyday, normal, almost blase kind of way for people to start feeling this nostalgia and, and appreciation for 90s Internet <laughs> You know, so it's like the fact that people even are looking back at this stuff and thinking like, oh, this is actually kind of like art. Like, this is actually kind of interesting. I think actually opens that up. You know, now this stuff is actually, it's not just being made and being, and then the person dies and then all the belongings get up in flames. It's like being made, put online, and it sits there forever. That's I, not going away. I agree with you on that. You know, it's one of the things that got Ramsey Lewis back on track with his back catalog. He only had a few records in print. And then his nothing against... Ramsey Lewis's later material, but I I thought it's more tepid. Big fan of Ramsey up until, you know, but you couldn't find him. But you could find, like, on Napster time days, you could find, like, all these great tunes that were out of print. You had to really go digging for them. I think hip-hop is one of the big, this is kind of more funk and jazz-centric, but hip-hop did 
wonders. Oh God, yeah. For keeping yeah. jazz out. In fact, all those samples, man. Yeah. And Blue Note had a great business model. Bruce Lundvall, who I had the pleasure of having dinner with, great guy. Instead of suing these guys, let's put these records out and promote it. You love that song by Big Daddy Kane? Well, here's the original. Mm. You love that Gangstar album? Here's the original. And it's attractive. You hear, and oftentimes, the songs are just as compelling as the ones they sampled. I got into that, you know, I could, I was a jazz, been a jazz fan for years in soul and funk as well. And you could listen to a song, and some of my friends would be like, oh, I love this De La Soul track, or I love this EPMD cut. Oh, that's, a, that's from George Benson. Yeah. Who's George Benson? Oh, he's this jazz guitarist. And then you open it up, you're like, oh, well, this is kind of, this is kind of cool. I've even gotten the pleasure of meeting a lot of hip hop producers. And it's amazing how a lot of them do not listen to hip hop. They listen to like the one guy, he uh, famously sampled Stockhausen, the avant-garde composer Stockhausen. And uh, like, what made you choose that sample? And he's like, well, that's what I listen to. Yeah. He wasn't very talkative. He's like, oh, I love uh, Charles Ives and all this really out there music. And he, when you look, he looked New York City, straight up. It's all from digging in crates. crates. Yeah. Dig dusty crates. That's all it is. So you know, you know that term. I was going to use that term. Yeah. That to me is what documentary making is like. It's visual digging in the crates. Yeah. And that's, there's, you can have some of those fun conversations with hip hop heads and DJs because they love all kinds of music and they dig for these samples and they turn into like these mad scientists, archivalists for music. And that's what, I've been trying to say, I'm not very good with words right now, uh, is, yeah, some of these documentary guys are, like, digging in the crates. Visual digging in the crates. Yeah, I mean, we try and do that to an extent here at Smug Film, too. I mean, I'll, I'll bring it up ex an example that, you know, people might snicker at at home, but the Dwayne Johnson Hercules movie was getting trashed. <laughs> I watched that. I think it's a perfect movie, but besides the fact that I think it's just a f fantastic film, it is really important in history in that it's an agnostic sword and sandal movie. And it needs to be like pinpointed as that in history. Like that's a very significant and interesting thing is a sword and sandal movie that's totally agnostic about the gods. Yeah, that's true. They're usually very... Yeah, I love I love that aspect. And that's like, that should be its legacy. You know, some people like the movie, some people won't like the movie, but that needs to be said. And I try and say it like every opportunity I get a chance to. And there, there are these movies that hide in plain sight, like that one. That's definitely a movie that just came and went, and people just assumed what they assumed about it, and then it was gone. And uh, I mean, I've I've told tons of people to watch that movie. Many friends have enjoyed it. I know John D'Amico is not a fan. I know Jenna probably will never watch it. Maybe one day. <laughs> I I adore that fucking film. Maybe I'll watch it now because I you know the, the site here. Some of my favorite articles have been uh, how you guys redid Elvis. I think you guys did one of the best well, interpretations of Elvis. It all, it all falls on Jenna. I mean, it's, Jenna did the Oh, man, the work. Yeah, that's just me. <laughs> I, I shared that with, I mean, I know some real, like, people, I saw Elvis 85 times in 1977. Like, oh, wow. You know, like, some real hardcore Elvis fans, and I showed them, hey, read this. They're like, wow, it was so well done and respectful. Well, obviously, you called spades a spade on it and, you know, whatever aspects of them, you know, but it was such a cool thing about it you know uh, what you did with the elvis uh, article thank the, you the surrealism one the dune field in england uh and the double that was one of the that's best. another jen epcar classic that's a what's one of the finest examples of modern surrealism or was dance of reality not well, yeah, it was dune dance of reality field in england and the double that's why i brought this guy on just four, so we could four yeah. fantastic <laughs> films that just like really knock your socks off incredibly original and uh, 
the it's the point of view. It's a good point of view in a different angle. Well, Jenna, with the uh, the Elvis thing in particular, the thing that you were noticing was that the synopses for a lot of these films were completely incorrect that were online. Like yeah, they were either, they were just so bland. They were so vague that you didn't even get a stance, sense of the story. And you were, as you were going through, you were like, well, what movie were you watching? Like, did you just like <laughs> crap that out and throw that up on IMDb? And like, you would, you would write pretty detailed synopses. You were doing archival work without probably realizing it, you know, at the time. At least I've done that in my lifetime. Yeah. But it, it was it was a hell of an endeavor. I think it was what like thirty something movies you watched, or yeah, it was like thirty one. It took God it damn. took like half a year. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. read those books about him too. You yeah. Did the yeah, afterward, then that, that's what happens. But that's you know, it's like that's what's interesting about you know to bring it back to Gary once more. It's like you know, and you when you sort of even commit yourself to even an hour of watching something, sometimes that brings you onto these sort of like you know you fall down the the Google hole, you know, you, yeah. YouTube stuff and suddenly you find out like, oh, this is actually really interesting or this person knew this person and that person's even better than the original person. Yeah. You know, it's it's wonderful. Well, I wish pe- more people at home would realize when they do fall into the Google hole, which which is kind of like a jokey thing nowadays. And like, it's like, a oh man, I get so distracted from what I'm doing. I'll like YouTube something and then I'll YouTube 10 other things. It's like, no, that's a beautiful thing that you're doing. That's a very important thing. It's I not something, it's not something to be embarrassed about. It's not something to feel like you're, you know, remiss in your duties of whatever else you're doing. No, follow those fucking trails and you're going to find something that you never would have found otherwise. People are afraid to be curious. Yeah. We were talking about this earlier today. Like, I know all these diehard Pink Floyd fans, and you, they only, or Led Zeppelin fans, and they only know like three or four songs. And then this happens to me oftentimes. Like, oh, what's your favorite Floyd album? Oh, I love The Wall, which is, oh, mine's more. Well, I never heard of that. You show it to them. And I'm always surprised, like, hey, where'd you find that record? Man, it's right there with all the rest of them. <laughs> it's right there. Yeah. If you YouTube Pink Floyd, you'll see another brick on the wall, but you'll see like, um, a gumma as well. It's right yeah. there, dude. Just click it. it. It's Pink Floyd. Oh man, I didn't know they had this many records. Where, where have you been? Or you sing a, or you play a Led Zeppelin tune. Uh, my one of my favorites is "Hats Off" to Roy Harper. I don't know if you know that song. It's off the third album. Great tune. It's amazing how many people just go blank. It's it's on that famous, you know, it's it's on that album. It's Led Zeppelin. Yeah, you know, and people don't go outside that box. That's why it's funny you're talking about DVDs. I'm going to veer off for a second. Like Netflix, I think, is great for curiosity because there's so much available to it. But what I think is not cool about streaming films or Netflix or whatnot is the DVDs, you can actually, it's like a piece that you don't get when you watch it on Netflix. You know, like Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. You get the movie. You get the interviews with with Chuck Chuck Barris. You get to watch the setups, the you know, uh, Sam Rockwell training to the, the, the gong show dances, the gong show auditions, the diff, you know, all these moving parts to the film, the, the Charlie Kaufman connection that really builds this whole fascinating world up. It's, you know, and again, it breeds curiosity. I actually yeah. started watching the gong show because of the film. <laughs> and I started getting Chuck Barris's books. Went so far as to go meet him one day. Mm. Well, we're going to take a quick break right here and we'll be back with more uh, show. So see you soon. And now, Smug Film presents Robot Reenactments. If peeing your pants is cool, consider me Miles Davis. Oh, that was the grossest thing I've ever heard in my life. This has been a robot reenactment. Now, back to the show. Hello, Smug Film fans. 
Leave us a question or a comment for Smug Film to play on the show by calling the following voicemail number 718-395-9711. Once again, that's 718-395-9711. We look forward to hearing from you, you lovely, lovely people. Welcome back to the show, and uh, we're going to plug our Patreon donors. If you like the show, of course, you can go on to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash smugfilm, and you can support us. You get all sorts of great bonuses. You get all these episodes we haven't even aired. You get like something like 20 bonus episodes. You get access to my two films. You can watch Shredder and Rehearsals just for donating a dollar or more a month to our Patreon. It's awesome. So you get the films, you get the bonus episodes. It's great. If you donate five bucks, you know, we'll plug you once a month on the show. If you donate 10 bucks, we'll plug you every episode. And here are our $10 donors. If you're listening to the show, you know who they are. Room full of spoons. Let's start off there because that's kind of apropos to what we're talking about. Our good friend Rick Harper uh, loved the film The Room, the Tommy Wiseau film The Room, and made a absolutely extraordinary documentary about it called Room Full of Spoons. It's touring the world right now. You you got to check and see if it's going to be uh, somewhere near you. And if it's not, you got to request it. It's roomfullofspoons.com. And this is just a guy who uh, wanted to find out everything he, he could find out about the room. And it sent him all over the world interviewing people who were involved with it. It's, it's the definitive uh, document about the making of the room and uh, the backstory to Tommy Wiseau. You find out stuff about Tommy Wiseau that you can't find out anywhere else. He just posted, actually, because uh, I, I donated to his Kickstarter for that. He just posted about how they're trying to get um, they're working out some deal with Tommy. That's that's very interesting. And they're going to get wider distribution from it. Nice. So that's wonderful. And then they have a show. They have a screening coming up in Melbourne, Australia. So for all of our fans for all in our, Yeah, for all our uh, Aussie fans, uh, please check that out. Please uh, say hi to Rick for us uh, when you, you meet him at the show. And it's a great movie. If, I don't think he's actually going to fly to Australia. <laughs> it's probably just screening there. But um, yeah, Rick Harper, roomfullofspoons.com. And now, of course... Minor key games. Do you like uh, video games there, uh, Kyle Eagle? Uh, I haven't played one in about 25 years. That's the answer I was looking for because uh, minor key games, J. Kyle Pittman, David Pittman, they make new video games that feel like old video games. And I, I like the old stuff and I like their new stuff because it feels like the old stuff and it's good stuff. So uh, Plus, uh, J. Kyle is his name. So you guys have a lot in common already. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, my first name's Jason. Yeah. Ah, Jay... Uh, we got Jay Kyle Eagle. We got two Jay Kyles. Jay yeah. Kyle Pittman. Maybe you should start the Jay Kyles band. <gasps> <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, Jay Kyle needs to check out Jay Kyle's work is, is what I've decided. You got to go to minorkeygames.com. You got to check out Super Win the Game, which is my favorite. I like that one a lot. That's a good video game. And he just came out with uh, Gun Metal Arcadia Zero. That looks good. I got to check that out. And they got a whole bunch of other games. So, uh, and those guys are so great. Yeah, they're good. They're good just, people. Just give them a dollar. Well, sometimes their games are on sale for a dollar. And I don't understand like how they even make money. Like they're these weird like Steam like sale things or like for 24 hours, you can get like one of their games for like a penny. It's crazy. So you got to check out the website, see if there's a deal going on. You got to get one of their games. They're worth a dollar. Absolutely. Games, are there games like, like in the style of like Mighty Bomb Jack and like, 
uh, Metroid and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a, it's that kind of colorful psychedelic. Absolutely, I love those kind. Of, yeah. If you take a look at these screenshots, you're gonna be like, oh my god, how was that? You know, made a year ago and not 20 years ago. Mm. And they do uh, incredible CRT uh, emulation. I should say uh, they they're kind of like the the forefront of that. Kyle specifically, I think this is his baby. He makes uh, it look like you're actually playing on like an old TV on your computer, and he does it better than anybody else has ever tried to do it. It really like looks right. He analyzed how colors are interpreted on these old TVs, etc. He nailed it. So uh, check that out, minorkeygames.com. And of course, last but not least, but uh, actually least, you know, I, I make that joke every time. I'm going to keep making it. Uh, Jay Brunner. It's just a man. He he doesn't have a uh, video game company. He doesn't have a documentary. He's just like he's a one man band. But he's full of muscles. He's full of mu- muscly man. Bristling. Big old uh, big old guns. Big guns. Big guns. Let's get a Jay Brunner tweet going because at Twitter he's at Bobby Slow. He actually, you know what? He described. Let let us describe Jay in his own words because recently he put this up. Okay. And uh, if it doesn't tell you why he's not a wonderful guy, I don't I don't know what will. So. Says Jay Brunner, 24 years in the Coast Guard, Virgo, hates weird Twitter, loves Corona light, thin tall cans, perfectly rounded for my fist to chug them down. Saw the Philharmonic Orchestra once, also saw David Blaine levitate on the street. Believes in karma, but not co-ed dorms. West side till I die. If you can't handle me at my worst, you probably don't know German. General funny man. There you go. So Jay Brunner. Follow him on Twitter. He's got he's got a really good Twitter ratio. I'm just I'm I'm jealous of his uh, Twitter ratio. Uh, he's his followers to following. It, it's very impressive because people like the Jay Brunner. Yeah, he's wonderful. Plus, he runs Cowser, the Silent Jury in the Trial of Mankind. The yeah, that best that's Facebook, Facebook page. Yeah, that's a go. wonderful. It got a write up in a. Oh yeah. Can't remember what website. Somewhere. Somebody wrote something. <laughs> Somebody scribbled something down about it. Yeah, I'm they sure. got a whole interview. They were like, why did teens love this page? <laughs> <laughs> he was like, well, you know, that's it, why. It rings true to them in it some does. capacity. And uh, yeah, so those are our plugs. And now back to uh, jazz discussion as uh, Kyle's uh, digging through some of my CDs. Uh, what, what do you got there? Bob, well, we're, we're talking Bob Dylan about, Portrait? So, uh, yeah. now, uh, talking about Rediscoveries. This yeah. is an album that was completely lambasted when it came out. Yeah, Bob Dylan's self-portrait record. Love it. Now, it's funny. I have had the pleasure of knowing Al Cooper very well, Pleasant's record. And we were talking about Bob Dylan one day. He asked, which, which, which ones do you prefer? I go, actually, I love self-portrait. I didn't get probably half a breath in. So he's like, what are you, crazy? That record's terrible. Back then, they thought it was terrible. But I got turned on to it through Royal Tannenbaum's. That's right. What a cool song. Choice track. Wigwam. What is it? Couldn't find it. Found it. Go to buy it. It's got all these. It's like half of, a, of the reviewers on Amazon or whatnot. It's like, what a terrible record. They're also of this time. So they're in their 70s now. They remember when it came out. It was lambasted. Yep. People like you and I and Wes Anderson, like, I think it's a beautiful record. Through the lens of time, it's great. Yeah, he was way ahead of his time. Well, this is kind of like, to me, I always thought this is kind of his white album. It's a sketchbook of what before, during, and after what he's going on. Mm. There's live tracks, there's throwaway tracks, uncharacteristic, like Wigwam is a totally uncharacteristic Bob Dylan track. I, I think it's interesting to put out a second one. I think it's uh, it's also like a, a track where like maybe some people needed like a visual 
cue to cue them into it. I feel like that's that's a case with a lot of Wes Anderson stuff. It's it's recontextualized uh, certain songs where like he, his style and his visuals put to those music. It makes you hear the music in a different way. Maybe uh, you know he that that great track uh, from Creation, Making Time in uh, uh, Rushmore when it's cycling through like all of uh, you know Max Fisher's. Uh, various things his extracurricular activities that he does in in school you know something about that sequence it, it's such a great sequence for for one thing but it just keys you into that track and you fall in love with like these songs i think uh, wes anderson is really really good at that and maybe probably better at it in the first half of his career but it, he he really really excels at like choosing tracks and giving them breathing new life in them in that kind of like Scorsese-esque way where he would take these uh these tracks that maybe didn't necessarily on paper go along with what was happening on screen but just fused together and like now you hear the music in a new interesting way I would say I would say Wes Anderson is you're right is right on par with because Scorsese brings a lot of great music music to the table or brings it out like Monkey Man Mm. a song that was not a very well-known Stone song killer track which is not very well known nowadays. People know that they've actually played it in their their concerts now. Yeah, uh, Wes Anderson. I have tried to get him to do a music show for years. I don't know him that well. I just say I know him professionally acquainted with him. I have thought he'd make a great music because he, he's someone who gets it. He's clued in. Oh, yeah. to music. Now Rushmore, uh, in my opinion, is what revitalized Ooh La La. Mm-hmm. I think Ooh La La is a class. Ronnie Lane, who wrote that, who no one really knows to me, proves that one, Ronnie Lane's obscure. That movie helped. There's now a lot of a, a Ronnie Lane cottage industry now. because Mostly in Europe, though. England is native England. Uh, but Ooh La La, to me, that movie kind of put it on par with uh, anything by Ray Davies or Cole Porter or Gershwin. I think it's a song that's classic throughout the ages in the way the song ends the movie, uh, the sentiment of it, the lyrics. It just all comes... You get... It's like you almost hear it for the first time again in a new light. It certainly got Rod Stewart to cover it, and he never wanted to sing it. That's a true story. He never wanted to sing mm. it. Ronnie Wood sings it. You know, I wonder what Rod Stewart thinks. Now. Like, oh, I should have sang that song. Like, you know, <laughs> I should have done that. I mean, that's a fantastic song, yeah. You know, talking about revitalizing. So here, here's my conundrum for you, okay, Mr. Jazz of the Hour. I want to know, you know, so I, I've always found like, you know, I, I don't understand basically why jazz is sort of looked on as either like, well, it's always looked on as super lame. Now, granted, as you were sort of mentioning, jazz took this weird turn in like, I don't know what, the 80s? 80s, yeah. And, you know, and that's sort of maybe what a lot of people see now are like really boring looking white men. Yeah, or it seems like <laughs> very boring. Like people look at like Ken Burns' jazz thing. They're like, they, it feels like school. Like, oh, I'm going to have to sit down and I'm going to be watching that like in class yeah jazz has become like like the math class of music (laughs) which is a shame it's america's music it's america's classical music but it's just you know i'm I'm trying to think about films i mean like there's a couple times that i've seen jazz documentaries that really excited me about jazz and and i think that in and but versus uh rock documentaries there's so many really interesting rock documentaries i mean my number one would be uh stop making sense you know, I mean, that really, it captures... Oh, it's such a document. It's, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. It absolutely captures the moment. It captures the spirit of the talking heads. It ca- It's beautifully shot. It's focused on expressions. It's focused on 
really bringing you into the music and making you feel like you're at a concert. Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a big Talking Heads guy at all. But that that fucking seeing them live in that context, I was like, all right, I fucking get it. Right. And like I can watch that a million times, and I have. But am I going to put on a Talking Heads record? Probably rarely. It's it's such a when I say document, it's like it transcends what it even is. Like it's right. it's like if you, whatever you feel about Talking Heads, you watch that and you're like, for for an hour, you're a fucking Talking Heads fan. You know? Oh yeah, I just I do not, and I am not. You <laughs> you you hate that movie, right, John? I don't hate that movie. I hate that band, and the movie doesn't change that. Uh, fair enough. What's that, Jonathan Demi, right? Yeah. 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 I well, anyhow, whatever John thinks. <laughs> I just, but I, I don't feel like I've seen that for a jazz movies, and I've seen, I've seen some. Uh, now, you know, I don't know. I've seen a couple of of jazz documentaries. I've seen a couple of jazz movies. I feel like the movies tend to be, you know, it's like they're always like Lady Sings the Blues. You know what I mean? It's always about this sort of like, oh, isn't it sad? <laughs> well, Sweet and Lowdown I love because it, yeah. it it captured a funniness to it and it, it it even kind of lampooned the whole looking back like thing, like j- the setups, like the talking head setups, uh, you know, not to use talking heads twice in two different contexts, but I, what I mean is the documentary setup of like a talking head talking to a camera like woody allen's in talking about the yeah main character. <laughs> which is hysterical and it runs it runs parallel to the life of django reinhardt yeah you know that's when you say jazz like you saw talk about documentaries or biographical films i guess both honestly because i feel like you know what why aren't the documentaries capturing the spirit i feel like the only jazz documentary that i've seen that i really felt captured the spirit and also also made me um really interested in the musician was uh, Sun Ra spaces the place. I love Sun Ra. That's well, another that's a, thing. That's a very big synthesis of like visuals and sound. His, like Sun yeah. Ra. Yeah. It captures Sun Ra. Yeah. Well, I think the documentaries are exceptional. There's a lot, there's, there's a couple of great Miles Davis documentaries, especially the Electric Miles one. Really incredible. And the DVD extras are, I think, could be released on their own record. But. Uh, in film, it's true. It's like okay, talking about the Born to Be Blue film. Uh, yeah, because all these now all these movies are coming out suddenly, and I wonder if that was even sparked by um oh shoot uh, the uh, drumming one. Oh, Whiplash. Whiplash. Yeah, well, I, I'm wondering if it's inspired by Whiplash because Whiplash was really interesting. Even though everyone keeps sort of saying it's this sort of jazz film, but to me, coming from I was in marching band for for years. I played uh, instruments in a band for a year, and it reminded me of that. It didn't really remind me specifically of jazz so much as like the, that dynamic of being in a band. Well, to me, whiplash is as anime more than anything else. (laughs) It, it, it it takes the anime thing of let's take just an esoteric thing like tennis or whatever else. And let's just, just make the stakes as high as possible to like cartoonish, uh, but you know what? That brings people into it. So like whether whether or not like, you know, I don't know. It's good anime. It's great anime. (laughs) Well, you know what you're, I just wrote a piece for born to be blue. And I mentioned that film in it. There are two things I think that are going on with born to be blue and in films kind of like that. Okay. So what the one side you have, I always think of biopics. I've been forever poisoned by biopics by a good, a good friend of mine, director, Robert Downey senior. He just, one day went off by he hates biopics, particularly Bird, Clint Eastwood's Bird. Mm. I don't mind Bird too much. Uh, I don't force force Whitaker's great act doesn't look like Bird, Charlie Parker. But he goes, what a piece of junk that was. In biopics in general, he wants to watch some guy dance around for two hours, you know, pretending to be somebody. And I agree. There's a lot of stuff that's corny about him. You know, although his son, 
his career, one of his big career marks with his son was chaplain. But right. Anyway, <laughs> but I agree with that. There's a lot of cheat. It, it's almost like they're f- so formulaic. It's almost like if Hollywood has nothing to do, like, uh, let's make a biopic on this guy. Well, there was that patch for a while, like with uh, Walk the Line, and there were a couple others. There, there was a weird patch where, like, it was it was synonymous with like, all right, it's going to get some sort of. Uh, nomination yeah well they're easy they're like they're easy to get nominations because one you get the family behind it and then you everyone involved plus it gets the whatever like walk the line obviously you're going to get the nashville network and country western and rockabilly types are all good easily they're easily marketable yeah but then there's the other uh, in the last i'd say 20 years has been this nice boom of biopics that take the mickey out of it like american splendor of dangerous mind uh 24 hour party people yeah they subvert the expectation yeah. entirely and I, and I think that's what born Me blue is doing here and what's funny you mentioned whiplash is that the director got the music the rhythm the way it's edited you feel the mental high oh the, the editing is tremendous it's incredible i'm a jazz fan i love it, it whiplash is a don ellis track by the way don ellis definitely deserves uh more praise but it's it's loosely based on the writer's life and elements of Buddy Rich's life. And Buddy Rich, if you know who he was, a drummer and a real taskmaster. And uh, but that film, that guy got it. He got it. This guy likes jazz. He knows the rhythm. The editor probably gets it. But the, see, that's what I you you so rarely see for jazz. I feel like you're gonna see that for rock movies way more, and I don't understand that. You know, like I'm well, don't talking. Don't you think they just make more rock movies? Period. Yeah. So the chances of getting a, a good one are better. Yeah, but why? You know, I mean, jazz was cool before rock was. I mean, jazz invented cool in, in the sort of way we use the, it. I mean, the 30s to the 60s, there were a ton of jazzy movies. And then as jazz gave way, the, the you know, you, you said it yourself, it, it invented it first. I love, I love All Night Long. I think that really captures what's cool and interesting about jazz. That's the one with Charles Mingus in it. It has, yeah, with a... a it's a British film. Oh, Patrick British McGowan. One? Yeah, that's yeah. really good. That, that's um, black and white. Othello. Like, yeah. 60s. Yeah. Uh, well, one thing about. But rock- that, I mean, and also like the way that he uh, is playing those drums in the end, that, that Patrick McGowan like studied drumming for months just so he could get this like one second clip of him mm. killing it on the drums at the end. It was really, it's it's an excellently done film and it, it makes jazz interesting and cool. It has all these actual like Brubeck's in it. Um, uh, Mingus. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, actual people are in it. Um, you know, in, in the background, they get like one or two lines. Oh, hey, you know, how are you doing? And then they like actually play music. And, and but it's rare, I feel like, that, that you're finding that. Whereas, you know, I look at talking about Clint Eastwood, his Thelonious Monk documentary, um, I... You know, it's like it's good for footage of Thel- Thelonious Monk in straight, concert. Straight No Chaser? Yeah, yeah Straight No Chaser. I haven't seen it in a while, but I, I remember liking it as a kid. It's fine because it's sort of, it's a good document. Like, I'm happy that it exists. But, like, it doesn't capture what's interesting and cool about Thelonious Monk to me. Uh, unless all it thinks that all you have to do is put a camera on him and that's enough. Which it kind of isn't. Well, he was dead by the time that film came out, I think, wasn't yeah. he? He, Yeah. But there's a bunch of footage of, of him in concert. Yeah, are they, In yeah. interviews. But you know, uh, going by what you're saying with the the films and stuff like uh, uh, Whiplash or like uh, All Night Long, and what you were saying, John, about rock music giving way to to jazz, rock benefited from technology more than jazz did. By the time, 
like shows like uh or like Woodstock was being filmed. They had great camera work, great, mm. you know, uh stuff like uh let's say the old Great Whistle Test that had a beautiful use of lens flare. MTV, let's say if, if, or for argument's sake. Jazz didn't have that. There's a great there's a great uh live version of Gimme Some Lovin', the Spencer Davis song that traffic cover. And it's a totally ramped up, blazingly funky version of it. And they capture it perfectly with fisheye lenses, fast zooms and pans, showing the audience's feet dancing, like stuff like you really got the rhythm of the song and it pans up on the conga player's hands. They're just a blur. You can't even see him, but you hear the conga just rattling off. You're like, yeah, I'm there. Jesus Christ, I want to dance now. Whereas jazz always kind of had talk show host style. Like there's the stage, there's the band, they play fade to black mm. next song they didn't really have really good camera work to capture it some did some didn't that's why i think that one thing visually rock movies or benefit from is that they had the newer technology newer actors like bet midler playing the rose which is a uh basically a uh well criterion just put that out too by yeah. the way the rose it's supposed to be a uh, janice joplin yeah and, you know, that's probably her best film ever. Alan Bates is in it. I mean, it just has incredible direction, incredible acting. And I think sometimes with jazz, you find more people who are into rock who aren't into jazz. If you don't get it, you shouldn't be playing it. I, 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 I goes for any kind of acting. If you're not a Southerner, don't play a Southern role unless you can nail that accent. But like with talking about Ken Burns, it's one thing about meeting other documentarians and other jazz heads or crate diggers is that Ken Burns inadvertently kind of created an underground jazz scene uh, by people that were pissed off at him. Uh, Chico Hamilton made a great remark. Uh, the first time I ever heard it, well, the son of a bitch Burns ruined jazz for us. Now, nothing, Ken Burns would think you're a great filmmaker. <laughs> I've met you a few times. You're a pleasant person to be around. But, I, you know, anyway. In essence, he united a, a group. In a lot of ways. Because yeah. a lot of people that felt like Clark Terry didn't like the film. Because... Nothing gets Wynton Marsalis, but Ken Burns wasn't a jazz fan. He said it. I only had one record. Then you shouldn't be making a film about jazz. About me, like, making a film on cricket and then being the all-authority on it. And he used Wynton Marsalis. Wynton Marsalis is a fine musician, and he's a great statesman and crusader for the cause, but he's a neocon. And I don't mean that politically. He's a neocon jazz guy. Mm. He's the guy that, like, nope, no jazz fusion. Nope, none of this. None of that. Hey, man, this stuff happened. You can't just leave stuff out and call it the be-all, end-all jazz document. If you're not going to cover To Return to Forever or, you know, Roland Kirk, and it's all there. Right. And if you're just going to do this neo-jazz stuff that you at Lincoln Center, that's fine, but that's it should be Wynton Marsalis and Ken Burns' take on jazz. You know what's done a great job recently was that show Treme. Yeah. I mean, that, that people were buying records they never would have bought Otherwise, because of that show, uh, you know, damn near every episode showcased so showcased some uh, interesting local band, and uh, there were these bands that were just ha suddenly having followings because of that show. I, I adored that show. I wish more people had, had watched it. Um, that uh, the music performances in that show are, are tremendous. Well, Spike Lee's behind that, and Spike Lee's a great chain. Well, his father's a jazz musician, uh, Ben Lee. Uh, Spike, in my opinion, has some of the best soundtrack use. He uses Simonde a lot, a couple times to great effect. But if you watch his films, Terrence Blanchard scores. Oh, God, yeah. 
Blanchard's phenomenal. Oh man, he brings you get that that sentimental. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Like between the dialogue and you're feeling it, you're like, oh my god! But then this is beautiful score. They're not generic. Spike Lee gets. I wish Spike Lee would make a music a jazz show. Spike Lee's jet. You know, I I think he'd do a great job. I think he's got a good point of view on it. the fact that he uses Terrence Blanchard over and over again. Says the guy gets it. You know what Blanchard track I wish people would use? I don't know if you know it, but have you ever heard Over There? Uh, it rings a bell, but that doesn't come to mind. It was kind of like a, I think it started off like a live track. I think somebody in his band actually wrote it. I can't remember what the lineage of it was. It, it's a phenomenal track. It was something he wrote post uh, New Orleans. Um, and I wish it would be used in a film in like any context. It doesn't even have to be about like New Orleans or anything. It's just like this very like, triumphant like uh energizing track that could like open a movie or play during like a really long sequence uh with an unbroken shot or whatever it's just a tremendous song um but yeah i wish blanchard were used way more than than he is it's it's weird that it's only like spike lee and a couple other people that really use him he's tremendous yeah like spike lee gets it i think uh older movies like sweet love bitter with dick gregory he got it. Dick Gregory was a comedian who probably back then comedians played in jazz clubs a lot. And he had, I know he was fr- is friends with a lot of those jazz guys. Uh, Sweet Smell of Success. Yeah. Great film. He uses Chico Hamilton. It's his band. Now the character in the movie that's in his band is not a real jazz musician. But the way it's shot, the way it's used, it's a little bit, bit of a dated film regardless. It's, you know, but it was like one of the better jazz adaptations. I, James Brown movie, Get On Up. I couldn't sit through that for more than 15 minutes. It falls in that same schlocky yeah. crap. And it's like, if the director and the writer aren't in the James Brown, if the actor's not in the James Brown, pass, keep moving. Well, that movie Soul Power did so much more of a, a good job at presenting James Brown than Gib- that James Brown biopic did. The Gibney Mick Jagger one, well, right? Well, Soul Power, Soul Power is the one, the, the concert in Africa one. Oh, yeah, 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 that, yeah. I mean, that and B.B. King, and especially in that, B.B. King, it, even if you you never liked a single note of B.B. King before in your life, which who the fuck are you? But uh, if, when you see B.B. King in Soul Power and hear him, you know, do his amazing vibrato and see him and the lights and everything, it's like you are a B.B. King fan. I love I love stuff that makes you an instant fan of something where it's like, yes, finally, I get it, you know? Yeah. Um, I saw Born to Be Blue, uh, that you know, also, which come out came out at the same time as the Miles Davis uh, movie, which I guess is not getting great reviews. But I haven't seen that one yet, though I'm curious about it. But uh, Born to Be Blue was interesting. But what I, you know, at least what it did, I feel like in, in the last uh, shot, kind of what you get. Not to spoil the movie, I'm not really, but <laughs> you, what you kind of get from that movie that it's actually a love triangle between a man, uh, you know, his trumpet and drugs. And that's kind of what that film is about. Um, and it's an interesting look at Chet Baker. It definitely makes him appealing uh, while still showing how troubled he was um, and showing him in, in, you know, both a, a really talented, wonderful light and then showing him at, at his like lows. It was definitely interesting, especially there's all these shots of him just sort of like just playing trumpet. You know, it kind mm-hmm. of at least made you feel th- his connection with music and how he kind of needs it as much as he needs drugs. Uh, and that was really, that was at least a more interesting uh, version, I feel like, than, you know, the sort of typical biopic. You know, like Lady Sings the Blues is a great movie, 
you know, for all of its, you know, sort of, I guess, you know, it glosses over a ton. That's what Diana Ross, right? Yeah. And she does a wonderful job, you know, uh, but it, it has it very like it's very that's formulaic of like, you know, she started off from nothing and then she went to this. And isn't it sad that she was a drug addict? And then it all went kind of downhill and it ends with that montage of like and then she died, you know, like, <laughs> uh, you know, death, of, you know. And so I don't know. It, well, you know, one of the things I think that would benefit jazz and film or music and film, period, is that the Miles Davis film talking about I remember when I first heard of it. I think this is probably not going to be good. I don't want to be negative about it, but biopics by and large, unless they're like the ones I mentioned, they're like American Splendor, which take the Mickey out of it. Uh, I, I really like side note. And, and it's funny that it's, it's sort of a rock one, but I really liked love and mercy, which I talked about on the show before, uh, which is the Brian Wilson biopic mm. that came out the other year. That was really well done. I just don't understand why that can't be done with jazz or maybe I haven't seen it. Well, you know, like I, I think, like Born to Be Blue, I would put that in the cat rather than making a jazz pick. I would put it, put it in there with your America Splendors, your Twenty Four Hour Party people, like kind of the palatable, original take, not standard fair biopic. Whereas going back to like Miles Davis, I interviewed Herbie Hancock recently and I asked him about it. You know, he goes, "Well, it's the kind of movie Miles would have liked to have been in or watched." I go, wow, he's yeah, because he saw himself as this kind of action guy, gangster, mm. tough guy. And that's kind of interesting. But not everyone knows that about Miles Davis. I've read, you know, Miles Davis definitely thought he was kind of a boxer, tough guy type, which I, you know. But sometimes I think what would do the movie, the service of music or jazz films is why instead of squeezing him into an hour and a half or two hour film, make him a series. Miles Davis alone, just the women in his life mm. is one season. You know, his clothes are another season. Late, <laughs> uh, uh, I've thought for years that uh, uh, Billie Holiday would make a great limited series. I mean, there's so much you could cover in that social commentary of things, the conditions historically that just would benefit from it. John Coltrane's life is interesting. Uh, Chet Baker would be a great series. I mean, a redneck from, I shouldn't say the redneck, he's from Oklahoma, he's Oki. He finds himself playing uh, West Coast jazz in Italy, making heartthrob movies. He's on Teen Beat magazine types, gets busted for drugs, ends up spending time in prison in Italy. You know, he's like the, he was like the original bad boy that girls dug that your parents hated the fact that you liked him. John, you said that you saw that Chet Baker documentary, right? Let's Get Lost. Yeah. The, yeah. From the, I think, late 80s. Just a spectacular documentary. I don't really agree with you that uh, there are fewer good jazz movies than rock movies. I, I think they're just older. That's uh, true. There's a ton of stuff, even from the 30s, that's just spectacular. I mean, think of those uh, Betty Boop cartoons. Oh, with, yeah. Uh, well, the car- Calloway in them. The, ca- the cartoons, like the Issue Is, Issue With My Baby by Tom and, Tom and Jerry, that's Louis Jordan singing that. Uh, those, to me, that's a different... That's a... That's, uh, that's taking artistic visual. Uh, I'll get. I want to get too caught in semantics. So have you here. seen the the Betty Boop cartoons that with Cab Calloway in them? Yeah, those are beautiful. Yeah, I mean those are spectacular movies that make you really feel the uh, the music. Uh, they're they're almost like music videos, you know, because it's all dancing and all coming out of the music, and and that stuff you didn't even see in rock until you know the late sixties with um, the Give Me Shelter era. And I think it's just the the jazz thing that it's first, so it's older. So if you're not predisposed to look for something older, you're just not going to find as much of it. 
I think the Europeans do a good job of portraying jazz. And there's a like, uh, or well, he's American. John Cassavetes was a well-known yeah. jazz, mm. and he used mm. the scores beautifully in his film Shadows, Faces. Yeah. Um, Bernard uh, 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 Tav- Tavernier. He did Round Midnight. That I thought faithfully got the feeling of a jazz musician by using Dexter Gordon in the later years of his life. Uh, I think by and large the the French especially get the music. It's just something they've got the number, and there's a lot of times. Shadows is Mingus, right? That's a Mingus score. Yeah, Mingus score. And you see, like like a lot of those French New Wave films, if they're not, if it's not a jazz musician film, they capture the essence of it. The French are very good at translating essence, mm. the ethereal vibe of something. And you know, in like there some of the other, I, I, they also have dominate some of the better documentaries the british the french and the germans uh have made far more incredible documentaries bbc has a bunch that you can see uh 1959 is a is a is a is one where they cover dave brubeck's timeout ornette coleman's uh the ship of jazz to come uh charles mingus's uh-huh and coltrane's uh giant steps and you never, you would never see that in an American broadcast. It's right. all, and I always think I'm not a patriotic person, really. Uh, I don't. But when your last it, name's Eagle. Don't lie. Yeah. But when it comes, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, middle well, name's American. Yeah, I got, yeah, <laughs> I got to balance it out. When it comes to jazz, I'm always so flabbergasted that it's our music. It's ours. Why are British and French and German guys? documenting our music and they're doing it excellently which is great and the japanese putting out all sorts of reissues etc of stuff that you know doesn't get reissued, reissued here. at all it's yeah. true I, ray <laughs> bryant great piano player great composer cannot buy his records here in america you have to go on amazon and pay 200 dollars yeah. for a japanese imp, uh, import Do, a lot of these guys make records in japan and france you cannot get in america herbie hancock has a plethora of albums when he was making big hits in the 70s and 80s that he made only in Japan. Yeah. It wasn't the last few years that they're now being licensed. That was one of the more interesting things I learned from doing the WBGO uh, radio stuff with you is, is you know, listening to these interviews with, uh, you know, even jazz musicians today and how they all had to go to China to get a job. Well, you know, I've made that remark. I've got a friend of mine back home. He's a composer and he's into avant-garde music and he's, he's African-American. I said, well, look, you got to go to Europe. Yeah, I mean it's it's not a it's just it's a truth. If you're black in America, you want to be an artist, you got to go to Europe or Asia. I don't know why that is, but there is so much positive proof of that. You know, uh, Dexter Gordon lived most of his life in Denmark and in and in uh, France. Can it's you- same thing with uh, metal and like virtuoso uh, guitarists, and you know, like Paul Gilbert, especially one of my favorite guitarists in the world. Uh, huge in Japan here. Uh, you know, I have to explain, oh, he's that guy in Mr. Big. Oh, who's Mr. Big? Oh, remember that one song they did that was like the ballad and this, that, and that. Like, Mr. Big, great, you know, super group in Japan. Totally fucking beloved and, and here, not so much. I will say that I love that Kenny G is like the closing song in China, that everyone, when they hear this one specific Kenny G song, they know that like, oh, the store is closing. It's time really? to go. <laughs> oh, wow. It's like this total, it's like the whole country knows it. Oh my God. And every store and every mall plays it. It was a whole New York Times article about this and it was wow. amazing. It was the best thing I ever heard. It was like, everyone's like, yes, Kenny G, of course, the master. <laughs> Bet you his ass cap rights are just, Whoever whoever works for Kenny G is... He gets a ton of money in, oh, in yeah. Asia. 
He's sure he does. Huge. But, you know, like, yeah, a lot of metal, which comes from Florida. Yeah. <laughs> is big in Norway and Sweden and stuff, which yeah. I think is, it's kind of interesting because, you know, some of the places where it's big in Florida are kind of, you know, backwoods swamp areas, the small suburban areas, a lot of them. And these guys are getting the chances to go overseas. But it is a shame that America does eat a junk a lot. And if you were to say to somebody, I've never met a Swedish person who did not know who Dexter Gordon was mm. of m- multiple ages. One odd fact, uh, Dexter Gordon is actually, uh, here's the guy from Metallica, the drummer. Lars Ulver. That's his godfather. Oh, wow. Yeah. I never knew that. Yeah. He, Dexter Gordon is his godfather. Jesus. His father was a huge jazz fan. He's from Denmark originally, Lars Ulrich. Oh, right. I think I forgot that. I yeah. think they cover that in some kind of monster. And I, I think that is like one of the cool, uh, to me, this sounds kind of corny, but that is, to me is probably why Metallica made it because they had the small blessing and connection. Jazz great. Dexter Gordon. Mm. His father loved him, knew him, played tennis with him, was a, was a journalist, I believe. And and is his godfather. That to me, I would be more if I ever met them, I'd be like, Yeah, Metallica's cool. Hey man, tell me some Dexter Gordon stories. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, long, long tall Dexter. That's what his nickname was. Yeah. But uh it's it's interesting because it you know, like how come the BBC sees fit to make these films on our music? Like Shine a Light, the Rolling Stones film. Sure. Yeah. That's a British production in the Stones. It would never be an American product, uh, American because the, the Rolling Stones are British. And this is Scorsese not being able to get the money. Yeah, you know, and and <laughs> and British people will, will take care of that. We've you know? talked about that definitely, even with their own movies. Yeah, the French, the Sarah, a Serge Gainsbourg film is going to be a French production. It would not be made in Hollywood. That'd be a, it. May be partnered, but to have it not having like no, I'm sorry, he's ours. He's French. He's one of our great artists. We'll take care of telling his story. Thank you very much for your interest. Other way around, it's like in Hollywood, hey man, you know, the French want to make this movie on, uh, you know, Eric Dolphy. Eric, who? Yeah, let him go ahead and do it. Like, man, that's kind of, that's kind of messed up, man. Like, you know, that's, this guy's great, man. But, you know, if you talk to a lot of Europeans, well, it's funny. Uh, one of the things I've always thought was interesting about jazz in the social context is like during the civil rights era, when there was so much violence and tension between whites and blacks. And there was a lot of news footage of people saying really derogatory things with the civil rights movement and its different members, one being George Wallace. And it's interesting how there was this view that it that, you know, the African-American population in America were looked down upon by a large section of American Americans. And it's interesting that at that time, that was when American music was making such headwaves in the world. Jazz. There were masterpieces being created during the 50s and 60s that were. American rock and pop music weren't making. Pat Boone wasn't being compared to, oh, Pat Boone, yeah, man, he's he's the next, he's the continuation of Ravel. No, Herbie Hancock was considered that. You know, Giant Steps was considered a major record to everyone but an American in a lot of ways. The jazz fans, but the, you know, breaking it down tonally and being like, okay, you know, like this guy is, you know, the successor to Ravel or Debussy or Bartok or Arnold Schoenberg. Where in here in America, we don't see that. And if you ask a jazz musician about classical music, they always know it. They'll tell you, oh, yeah, that guy, you know, he, he definitely takes after Dvorak or however you say his name. So, so what are your cho- top choices for best jazz movies? The best movies that you really portray jazz uh, as, as it is and as it should be? Well, I think in documentaries, I like Electric Miles. Jazz films, see, I'm still kind of t- taken on that. You know, I love Salt and Sea. 
Salt and Sea, wow. Yeah. Great. I love the fact that backstory, he was a jazz musician. That's yeah. kind of cool. But when they showed the horn playing scenes, they're cheesy. Yeah. They're not like, oh, you lost it on this, man. Like, it's obviously the guy directing it may not be a jazz fan. Because if he was, he wouldn't want to look schlocky like that. That may look cool. Like, yeah, man, we'll put him in a fedora and a wife beater. Like, that's cliche, dude. Like, big time. Well, you what know? about uh, like the conversation? You know, him playing the sax and that. That's kind of a good vibe. Oh, wow. Who puts sax in it? Is it Gene Hackman? Yeah. Jeez, I haven't seen that movie in years. And wow. he actually learned, I think, yeah. That's another good point. Uh-oh. You know, it's funny, uh, thinking about this too, uh, like, play Misty for me. You know, like... It, it, He's a jazz DJ. Yeah, and that's, it's, that's interesting. And then there's that scene where it's like, suddenly it's like the like Newport Jazz Festival. Like, it, you know, whole thing's in California. And then suddenly there's this scene out of nowhere where he's just recording jazz for 15 minutes. Clearly because Clint Eastwood was like, oh, this is great. Like, you know, they were like, oh, hey, we got to shoot this. But there's this concert going on. He's like, let's get the concert. Well, you know, Eastwood's a famous Oh, sure, sure. Fan. And it's obvious. But it, it, that, it's so funny because that, that footage is fine. Whereas like, I feel like him even using like the, as the jazz DJ and using this music over a murder uh, mystery kind of, you know, or uh, this sort of horror flick was way more interesting and even like is truer to the music than. Yeah. I get, I'll, I'll, Cannibal, you know, Ad- Cannibal Adderley's in that movie. Is he? Yeah. Uh, that's a good, that, that's a good jazz flick. What about that opening scene of uh night tide, the Dennis Hopper movie where he, oh, he, movie. he like wanders into a jazz club and it's a great little scene. You know, he, he just yeah. stumbles in and he's just watching some jazz and then he sees a cute chick and then he t- starts talking to the girl. But it's a great part where like, he's so close to the stage. Like he's like, he kind of stuck like next to like, when a, you know, stand up bassist or something. That's it, a great little moment, like in a, an otherwise not, you know, jazz related movie. You know, one thing I think it kind of sums up what we're talking about here is is the Simpsons parody where Lisa's hero, Bleeding Gums Murphy. Oh, yeah. Because that's kind of what, like, they always get, like, we need someone hip in the in this scene that's making kind of sage-like, you know, like, we'll get a jazz guy, and some guy, hey, man, yeah, baby, you guys got to follow your heart, baby. Yeah. You know, they always have that same, like, wearing sunglasses. They kind of parody that almost perfectly, because that's often, oftentimes, I think, how jazz gets lumped into cinematic portrayal. But when he dies, that that was it, they actually jumped a shark on it, like actually went for it. I hate that episode. Where, I love that episode. There's something about it. Uh, I don't listen know. To, listen to the jazz man. That song. Yeah, well, oh, that song is terrible, really bad. But I I I, I connected to that episode. But they actually have Steve Allen in it in one of them. I was a kid. Give me a break. Steve <laughs> Steve Allen, who was a famous uh, jazz fan, they actually have like there's a, a scene where they have bleeding gums on the Steve Allen show. Mm. You know, and Steve Allen had. Tons of he was a jazz musician himself. Yeah. Uh, How about you, John? Any uh, any jazz movie picks for uh, the listeners at home? Well, we talked about Let's Get Lost, um, so we'll consider that a given. Uh, I really like. It's an obvious answer, but I really like Jazz on a Summer's Day. I think it's like a very pretty, very uh, elegant movie with just gorgeous music in it, and. Um, Moon Over Harlem is another one I would pick, which is a 30s poverty row one, but that one is just so uh, crackles. It's also like 55 minutes long, so you can pound that one out. Mm. Great Day in Harlem is a good one. Yeah. But, but the, the documentaries, I'm in agreement that there's a lot of great ones. It's just the ones that depict jazz. I think a lot of them, they missed the mark, you know. Well, a Great Day in Harlem was really great, good, I oh, thought. Oh, yeah. The story behind it. It's you- just like taking this one photo of like every single 
person who's involved in jazz, uh, you know, who was alive at the time. In what, the 60s or 50s? 1958. There you go. And then having this one photo on a stoop in Harlem and then just going through the picture and saying who each person is and then interviewing people. It's really great. That reminds me of, uh, I saw this one recently, uh, James Shabazz street photographer uh, documentary, which is, he was just a guy shooting like shots of people in like the 80s, early 90s. And he he still takes shots today, but he like captured hip hop in its prime sort of like growing into you know what it is today obviously time period and like all these historical documents and like it half the film is just him talking to people in his pictures and they're like and flipping through his picture and be like oh man i remember that guy i remember because it's such a tight-knit community that it was born out of that like you know you get interviews with big hip-hop guys but you also get interviews with just people who just lived on the street near some of these people just like pointing out like oh that guy's in jail oh i i remember that guy that guy moved away oh that guy died it, it's great to see these like classic images just analyzed like all these you know random guys just posing on the street it's incredible yeah i mean i say for for me my pick would be just uh space is the place or um sunrise um a joyful noise it, but they're both like a joyful noise is more just like footage of him in concert. And then there's a sort of some interviews with the people that are in the band. But I just love Sun Ra. Sun Ra is so interesting. Mm. I, I just like how can you watch that movie? Not number one, just be totally blown away by his sense of humor, his artistry, the fact that he just like has this amazing philosophy and that all of this art comes out of this sort of just like decision of like, you know what? This planet doesn't fucking want me. I don't want this planet. I'm not mm-hmm. from this planet. Like I'm from my own planet. And and this is like, you know, everything that he does is just so interesting. I love him. I would say a good kind of unsung one would be the Brown Bunny, Vincent Gallo's film. Cause he, there was a, a jazz band like playing on the street. I think he was in Europe somewhere. And he heard the song that they were playing. That was just, I think one of their com- compositions. And he just went out into the street and he like met the guys and used one of their songs in Brown Bunny. And most of that film is just footage through like a car windshield, uh, you know, on the road. Just You're just listening to beautiful music. You're just listening to old jazz songs and new jazz songs and uh, sort of oddball, you know, pop picks. Like there's Jackson City Frank in there. There's like great music. And I always loved that on his audio commentary when he's talking about how like the response to that movie was so notoriously horrible at like, at the Cannes Film Festival. And he's like, I don't understand how somebody can boo beautiful music over like footage, like through like a windshield. Like, I don't understand why that would make somebody boo. Like that, that's such an intrinsic thing to like us as people, everybody can relate to that. Like why, like you have to be like a dick to like boo that, like that hits you to your core. You listen to a beautiful song. You're looking through the windshield while you're driving. Like what, what is there to boo about that? Vincent Gallo, he he always puts good music in his. Oh movies. yeah, like in Buffalo '66. There you go, Round Heart of the Sunrise. I think it was Heart of the by who? By yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. by yes, yeah. You know, and that's like wow, man. Like he used uh, King Crimson in the, in the film. Like, Absolutely. Good in fact, actually, I went back and listened to King Crimson. Yeah. With it, you know, um, good jazz. Well, as far as jazz scores go, that is true. There are a lot of great films that again that that score movies. Beautifully. Um, Mr. Budwing was a film that's fictional. I would say certainly is a predecessor to Memento. I would be seriously surprised if 
Christopher Nolan. Yeah, Christopher Nolan. I'd be seriously surprised if he wasn't a big fan of Mr. Budwin because they're so similar. But James Garner's character, uh, in remembering himself, one of his is tuny whistles. And there's a flashback where he's a, he's a composer for Verve Records. And he has this suite that he's writing. But it repeats throughout the whole film. And it's like, gives it this, I actually think that kind of, well, he's not, that's the kind of secondary in, in the film. His character is a jazz composer, but it fit the film well. It gave the film, the film a lot of, a uh, lot of uh, uh, feeling and ambience. What was his name? Kenyon? Kenyon something. I never remember the guy's name. The film was actually kind of obscure. Never really hit. I don't think it's even available on DVD, is it? Hmm. No, I gotta, I gotta find That's that one. That's how I somehow. feel about all night long. Though that was on Netflix for a little bit. That that one kind of comes and goes. I love that movie yeah. too. I would definitely say you should check that one out. That gives you the great, you know, it's working off of. That should be on Hulu now. That's a that's a Criterion one. Oh, is it? Oh, is it? Wow. Yeah. Awesome. It's so good. Well, I think we've given our listeners a ton to go and explore on their computers. Actually, and- hold on. Maybe it's not. It was um, Eclipse, not Criterion. So I don't know. Oh right. Those. It's, it could be a Criterion movie. I think that's such an excellent, underrated movie. It's really, really well done. has an awesome soundtrack. Most of the Eclipse ones should just be... I'm way more interested in Eclipse at this point. Yeah, Eclipse is tremendous. I wish I wish Criterion cared as much about Eclipse as me and John do. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, if you're listening at home, dude, I hope you were jotting notes and you were uh, looking for stuff to Google and maybe you're on your computer listening to this and you were checking stuff out. Uh, I think this is a pretty dense episode. Uh, Kyle, thank you so much. And where where can they check out that documentary? Where should they uh, go and look for it? You can get it on Amazon.com. Okay. Uh, you can get it from Dusty Groove Records. And what's the title again? This is Gary McFarland. All right. Directed by Christian St. Clair. Great guy. Interesting artist. Nice. Great, great and uh, Jenna, thank you very much. John D'Amico, thank you uh, for Skyping in. I know you couldn't make it here today. Yeah, I had things to do. <laughs> He had biscotti to eat. This guy's always oh, man, eating biscotti. biscotti. John, what are you eating that. right now? Tell the listeners what yeah, you're eating. Yeah, that's what the listeners want to know. I'm drinking uh, Arnold Palmer. Oh, nice. Good and pick. when we had technical difficulties earlier, I used that opportunity to get a slice of key lime pie. Oh, well, a lo- what color is it? It was. Uh, it's not the fake green. Oh, it's okay, not that green. good. Where'd you get it from? Um, I don't remember. I love though. key lime pie. You know, a uh, side note here, the, the expression as American as apple pie. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, apple pie comes from like Ireland or Europe. That's not true. It should be as American as key lime pie. I could get behind that. Key limes are native to Florida. I like that. Yeah, I could get in on that. I like a good key lime pie. Uh, they don't, you know, you don't really get them that well up here usually. The Chart House in Weehawken has a damn good one. That's good to know. It's real, you know. I'm all about the red. There's one good place in Brooklyn, but I forget which one. Like when I when I I find a good key lime pie, I I lock in. Have you ever bathed yourself in key lime custard? No, I have. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, it's part of my diet reg. It's part of my health regimen. Well, we'll get into that on the next episode. I'm sure. Probably be eating it. (laughs) I I think smug film. Smug film. As American as key lime pie. We'll be right back. Nice. I like that. (laughs) Nice little sample we can use. Thank you, guys. See you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.